Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Hey everybody, welcome to this week's Q&As. I'm going to be using a Blackmagic device to record this week's Q&A that I'm borrowing for a review, because I've been having issues with it, but I'm also trying to use it for retro game capture, and it's absolutely not designed for that. It's designed for this, basic HDMI or analog video with video signals, not video game signals, as well as audio. So the same exact microphone, same exact camera, instead of going through the Avermedia card and the Motu, it's going through this. And it should be exactly like every other week. There should be zero difference. But I know I have a bunch of my fellow nerd friends that watch these. And if you see anything crazy, please let me know. But it should be the same. And I'm also going back to processing the audio the way I normally do, at least just for this week, because I hated the way it came out last week. I don't sound like that in real life. It sounded muffled. I did just want to keep an open mind and take people's suggestions take them seriously and give it a try, but it's a, it's a hard no for me. I didn't like that one at all. So uh, let me know what you think, but let's jump in and see what we got for this week. First up over on Floatplane, Mike wanted to respond to Billy Retro Gamer's question last week about Linux capture cards. Blackmagic devices work with Linux, but the drivers are a giant pain in the ass if you're not using Ubuntu. Funny, this is a Blackmagic device and the drivers are a pain in the ass, even with Windows. But continuing, uh, Mike currently uses an Avermedia Live Gamer Portable 2 Plus, and it works flawlessly on Debian, Arch, and Ubuntu, as well as the cheap $20 USB HDMI cards that they've used on the same, uh, on the same distros. Both of those are UVC devices, USB video class, so they're treated like any other webcam. Pretty much any UVC device should work the same way, and it seems to be getting more common with the USB capture devices, so that might be something to look out for as you shop for a Linux-compatible capture card. Thank you so much, Mike. I completely forgot about UVC cards last week. I have no idea why, because I've used them and talked about them and praised them before. But Billy Retro Gamer, Mike is correct. UVC is an easy way to guarantee anything that says Linux compatible, that is UVC, should be an, an easy way to guarantee that it'll work. Um, you get less control over those. However, if you're just streaming, it doesn't matter. Now, when I say just streaming, you could even be a pro streamer. It doesn't really matter if you have tiny little details wrong. There's a little bit of color compression or a little bit of smearing or a couple of frame drops. And while, yes, I love it when pro streamers go absolutely crazy and get, you know, the crispiest, most beautiful streams, that has nothing to do with their the quality of their gaming. <laughs> it's just nice to look at. And even if uh, Twitch or YouTube is having a, a, a bad day or your internet connection's having a bad day, it doesn't matter if you have the crispiest streams anyway. So when I obsess over capture cards, it's from the point of view of people who do comparisons. So I'm going to compare the Xbox versus the PlayStation version. I'm going to compare every version of this game. And it's funny, not funny, that I've seen a bunch of YouTube videos where people were comparing two different things, whether it was a scaler or two versions of a game, and they're pointing out things as if it was the problem with the game, but they're actually pointing out effects of their capture card and uh, their scalers. So it's that's why I, I obsess over it. If you're trying to tell people this thing is better than that thing, but you're not comparing the right thing, then it's a problem. But for just streaming, pro level all the way down to just amateur, I want to hang out with four of my friends and stream while we talk. All you need is to be able to have people see your game and see you and hear you, or at the very least, just see the game. So any UVC device, including those cheap $20 ones, should be a great way to get started. And then just 
see where you go from there. Maybe nobody cares. I mean that with love. Maybe nobody cares if it's not as crispy as somebody else's and you just don't have to waste any more money on it. So thanks for the reminder, Mike. I really appreciate it. Now over on Patreon, I'm going to start at the bottom of the list today because I've refreshed a million times and Patreon is not loading all of the questions, all of the comments. So I'll try again at the end of this recording and hopefully the bug will fix itself. But if not, that means I may have missed somebody's question this week. So let's let's jump in and see what we got. Uh, starting with Jason's questions to this week. First, they're having some bizarre issues with 480p output from several different scalers even used individually. While messing with different combinations of scalers, they've noticed that the OSSC in 2x mode, the RT5x, and even the DVDO VP50 were each having trouble receiving the other's 480p signals. Thinking the chain itself was the problem, they removed the scalers until they could test each one at a time, and the only common issue was when they were set to 480p. Their CRTs had major issues getting 480p with DACs that they've been using for years, and they're fairly certain 480p is still and always has been supported under the HDMI spec. If the OSSC and CRT monitors couldn't pick this up, they absolutely have no idea what the problem could be. They just know it seems to be related to 480p output. So I've never had problems with 480p ever. And in fact, the most compatible resolution that I've tested with the OSSC is its 480p output. And I don't know why that is, but TVs that are not compatible with any weird retro gaming signal at all somehow are compatible usually with 480p. Some aren't at all, like this Blackmagic device, but uh, so that's weird. Um, the only explanation could be that some of those are oversampling, so you're not getting 720 by 480, you're getting 1440 by 480, and the scaler or your CRT should know how to handle that. So that could be part of it. It could be that each of these scalers is designed to receive specific signals and you're sending it an already processed signal, but I've mixed scalers up like that before for testing purposes and I haven't had any issues. So I don't really know what to tell you. Um, it could be that that DAC that you've been using that's worked in every other combination of stuff is part of the issue. I've, I've had tons of problems with DACs and I just was talking with somebody who very politely and, and lovingly was like, hey, one of the DACs you have in your Amazon store isn't working with 15 kilohertz anymore. And I said, yeah, yeah, no, it's, it's like one out of every 10 does that. And they said, no, no, try this one. All of my friends have bought this exact link and they've all worked. So you should link to this one. And I bought the exact link the day they sent it to me and it doesn't work with 15 kilohertz. It only works with 480p and up. So I'm not making fun of that person. I'm just saying now there are two separate nerds who are a little bit OCD about things who have confirmed that nine out of 10 of these links will work and one randomly won't probably because the manufacturer has a bunch of different revs with the same case and the same SKU number on it. So that's just kind of something that you have to you have to deal with with these DACs. So it could be that they're totally compatible with some components and not others. It, there's just so many factors. And I really hope somebody in the community steps up and makes their own. And I know it's going to be disappointing for people who are used to these $25, $30 DACs to have to spend 80 bucks on one. But I mean, after all the, the BS we've gone through over the years with these, don't you think it's worth buying one that you just know is always going to work rather than have to mess around with this? So the weird signals these scalers output and the DAC are probably the most likely cause of these, but you know, I, I'm not really sure what else to say because I've had the least problem with 480p. Next, Jason has a question that I just, I'm not really sure how to deal with this at all, but I'm hoping that some video game audio files will step up here because I'd love to know the answer. They've been playing a bunch of PS2 titles and they've noticed substantial issues when it comes to audio compression in games with voice acting, specifically something they think is called sibilance. I don't know that word, sorry. Uh, if they understand it right, it's from the original source files not being compressed optimally. So S sounds in particular sound more like hisses and have an additional fuzz to them when coming out of their speakers. Obviously, without manually replacing a whole bunch of game files, if that's even possible at all, you can't fix the source audio, but they're wondering if there's some type of audio post processor out there that could kind of fix this. That's a great question. Um, I have no idea, and I know that it can't fix it. You can't fix damaged audio, but you could do other things to compensate. And it's kind of like um, 
analog versus digital, you know, when people sometimes think analog sounds better and depending in the context of what you're listening to, it very well might. And one of the reasons why is the, the natural low level analog hiss and hum that comes with it might mask things that normally you would hear very clearly in digital. So while technically you're getting a worse sound, your ears perceive it as a much better sound because it cleans it up that way. So maybe, I mean, if you're using optical out from your uh, from your PS2, try using analog and run it through an analog receiver. I don't know. I'm just guessing here. It's a total guess. I would really appreciate if somebody who actually knew what they were talking about would step up so I didn't have to just sit here, uh, you know, if I'm, I'm completely getting this wrong. But yeah, that's an interesting one. Hopefully there's something people could do, but who knows? Try the analog thing and see if it makes a difference. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. D wanted to follow up on my Apple TV remote issue that I talked about in the Marantz NR1200 review. So a very, very quick skip to the end. When I was testing the amp and its CEC control and its volume through ARC, I thought that it somehow had broken my TV because it wouldn't change the volume on the TV anymore. And then after unplugging everything and just the TV itself was plugged in, the TV remote controlled the volume, but the Apple TV remote didn't. So somehow or another in messing with this, my Apple TV remote stopped using its IR output. So I have an LG OLED in my living room and an LG cheap ass uh, LCD TV in my bedroom. So I grabbed the Apple TV from the bedroom, brought it in the living room, Apple TV remote, and it worked. So I thought that's how I figured out, okay, the IR is definitely dead in this. So then I paired that remote with the living room one and I paired the quote unquote dead remote with the bedroom one and they both worked. So I thought the fix was to unpair and repair them, but D sent an article on, that shows how to reboot your Apple TV remote if it stops working. And essentially you just hold the home and volume down buttons for about five seconds or until the status light on the Apple TV turns off and then on again. And then release the buttons, wait for about five to 10 seconds for a connection lost notification to appear on the screen. And then uh, you might have to reconnect it after that or it might just reconnect, but that's awesome. Thank you. I wish I'd known about that. I wish I'd known about all of this. I didn't know it was a thing. I didn't know that those remotes could just crash and not change IR because I've been using Apple TV since the second or third revision, whatever it was. And I've never had a problem with it ever. And I'm not an Apple fanboy. I have an iPhone mini just because it's the smallest phone on the market with a workable camera, but I don't, I'm not a fanboy. I just, I use the products that I like and the Apple TV has been the best streaming box for me personally, but I didn't even know it kept coming out kept dropping out. And D said it kept happening to theirs. So thank you so much for letting me know about that. So um, both to let me know that I'm not crazy and that it is a problem and a much easier fix than uh, than repairing with a different one. Because if you only have one Apple TV box in your house, how would you be able to do that? So uh, really appreciate the heads up. And honestly, the Marantz has been working great since. Way better than any other amp that I've used, um, except for the Anthem amp. I did love that one. That CEC control was perfect on that. However, this one, uh, as long as you turn the amp off before you turn the rest of the setup off, everything is perfect. If not, what will happen is if like I turn, hold the power down on my Apple TV button and the Apple TV and TV go off and the amp is still on, then I go and manually turn the amp off, go to bed, wake up the next day. The TV thinks it's still in eARC mode. But the solution is to turn the amp on and just use the amp or wait for the amp to turn on and turn the amp off and that's it or just remember to turn the amp off first and then the setup. So a very small annoyance compared to all of the other bugs I've run into with eARC and the compatibility, the sound quality and the second channel, I think really made it worth it. So I'm sorry to take your question D and turn it into a continuing review of that amp I keep word vomiting on about, but honestly, this one has really impressed me. I think this and that NAD amp 
the two channel amp are the two most impressive amps I've used in a while. The surround sound NAD amp that I still have back there would have been, but it just keeps crashing all the time, all the time. If I leave it powered on and, you know, powered on stand, standby, sometimes I take it out of standby, I go to change uh, inputs and it freezes, kind of power cycle. Sometimes when I just turn the whole power strip off, so there's zero power going to it at all, I put the power strip back on and then it won't work with airplay or if, you know, if something else happens. So that could have been the best surround sound amp I've ever used. Uh, but NAD, I think they just don't care because they sell five, ten, twenty thousand $20,000 amps. So why are they really gonna care about a cheap amp like that? It's not how I would approach it, but whatever. So, <laughs> sorry, D, I, I, hijacked, I hijacked your kindness to, to rant about amps. <laughs> My bad, but hopefully the info is going out there to somebody that, that actually cares, because I, I really would love for the uh, audio troubles that I've been having to help other people out. So thank you very much, D. Jeffrey Pierce has a BVM and a PVM. Is there any possible way to output an RF signal to these? They'd like to hook, hook up an old school Famicom, which only has RF as an option. Uh, Jeffrey, funny you asked this question. I have had a pile of equipment sitting right there waiting for me to do a YouTube short about this for two weeks now, and I just keep getting sidetracked. So you'll get the early preview of something that's only going to be a minute long anyway. But all you have to do is grab any old VCR that has RF and composite video, which should be all of them. And that's it. it. The VCR itself doesn't even need to play tapes. It just needs to power on. So if you have anybody with a VHS player that eats tapes or something like that, just put some duct tape over the input and put bad to remind yourself, but run the RF in to the VCR, set the VCR to whatever channel that the RF connection is supposed to be at, and then use the composite video out to go composite video in to your BVM and PVM. And that's it. And I'm going to do two shorts on this. I'm going to do the first one, which just shows people how to do that, which is simple enough, but you know, a fun visual one minute long video is certainly not a bad thing. And I also want to follow up and do a lag test on it just because I'm a nerd and I like lag testing and I like showing people what the, the zero lag solutions actually are. And I also, you know, this reminds me, I should also do a quick light gun test as well, because I'm pretty sure it's going to be a 0.0, .0 lag added. But if it also works with light guns, then that's all the proof you need, just like I did with the RGB blaster. So very easy answer to that. Cheap garbage VCR um, is all you would possibly need. And if you happen to like VHS tapes, which 99.9% .9 of the time I do not, but you know, if, if you do like that original nostalgic experience, then just get a working one, but you don't have to worry about quality. Any, any VCR at all will work. And if there's even mono VCRs, which I don't ever remember those and I'm sure they were out, that's fine too, because RF's only going to be mono as well. Michael Vu has a couple of questions about capacitors. I'm going to answer the second one first. They recently reacquired their Pioneer Laser Active with a Genesis module, and they know they're pretty much guaranteed to need new caps, but they've heard it's a pretty complicated job. If the caps go bad, does that affect the Sega CD aspect as well, since it's in the LaserDisc tray part? Michael, that will affect everything, and if you don't get those caps replaced, it could destroy the entire Laser Active. And I'm not trying to be alarmist and I'm not, you know, people accuse me of that crap all the time, but I'm being very literal. If a capacitor leaks out and the fluid hits the motherboard, it could eventually corrode and kill the motherboard. And there's more than enough proof out there about this. So if you were talking about something like a console that you could still buy for 30 bucks, um, I might have a different answer. But in the context of a Pioneer Laser Active with a Genesis module, I would say get that to a pro right away to have all the caps replaced with good ones. And you should be set for the next 30 years after that. But I wouldn't mess around with that. That's too expensive of an item. And yes, I do realize that recapping that is going to be a very expensive job. And you're going to have to spend a lot of money on a pro modder that, to do that. But I mean, how much money would you lose if that thing just died and you had to sell it for parts? Now, your other question, a lot less uh, you know, a lot less alarmist. They have a Model 1 Saturn, and they've heard that they should get that model in particular recapped due to known leaky caps. Do I know if it's usually the main board or the PSU that needs the recap or both? So um, there's a few things about that. First, Saturns are awesome machines. However, you could still get them for a reasonable price. So if you could disassemble that carefully and take a very bright flashlight and look around all the capacitors and see if they're leaking. 
that will tell you if you need to do something right away or not. Um, take take like plastic tweezers or something. You can use your finger if you really want, but wiggle the caps around and see if there's any gunk underneath them. Because Jose has posted a lot of pictures of people giving him consoles that weren't working right. And he kind of looked around and was like, hmm, that's weird. The caps look fine. And he moves one of the caps aside and there's just a little gunk underneath. So the cap is bad and it is leaking, but it's not... It's not so bad that it's damaging the motherboard yet, but it's almost there. It hasn't just squeezed out from the bottom yet. So bright flashlight, if you've got like a mag light or something like that, and just look under and wiggle all the caps and see that a good visual inspection should let you know that's, you know, yes, I need to get it done right now, or no, you know, I could wait a little while longer. And once again, it's a Saturn. So if you get it wrong, then it's not, you know, you're not gonna have to remortgage your house to get another one like the Pioneer. Um, now, you talked also about you thought maybe you could probably do the recap if it was just the PSU, but they would try to probably try to find a modder if it's the main board, as the schematics give them a headache just looking at all the board revisions. Totally agree. Uh, but here's what I would suggest. First of all, do you have a decent desoldering station and soldering equipment already? If not, just give this to a pro. You're going to probably end up spending, I mean, about what you would for the Saturn, you might spend a little bit less with the pro to recap the whole thing and getting all the tools that you have. And it's if it's somebody who's good at what they do, I mean, I don't mean any disrespect, but they're obviously going to do it better than somebody who doesn't do a lot of these things. It's nothing against you personally. I mean, I do this stuff on a regular basis and I still give everything important to Jose because he does it all the time and he's better than I am. So it's, you know, I'm not, I'm not trying to, to poke fun at you. I'm just being realistic about all of this. But let's say you want to get into this and this is something that you would enjoy doing or you've already gotten the desoldering station that I always talk about and a decent desoldering iron and you get all the extra tools, then absolutely start with the PSU because you could remove it easily. Um, it's small and separate. It's just easier overall. And if you completely destroy the thing, you can get aftermarket. You can get, you know, there's a lot of choices here. So if this is something that you would want to be a hobby of yours, start with the PSU and see how it goes and be honest with yourself. Everybody sucks at everything they do the first time they do it, but do you think this is something you can get good at? Do you think this is something you want to keep trying at? And just kind of go from there. And if the answer is no, that's fine. And if the answer is yes, that's fine too. If the answer is yes, you don't have to go through the schematics. You should keep the schematics as a reference. But what you could also do is grab a cap kit from console five and just mark off each of the caps one at a time. So what I would like to do, what I like to do in those situations is I um, I remove one. Well, if you already have the cap from console five, I remove the cap, read the value of it, grab the value of the one from console five, put that in, and then I put a little dot with a magic marker on it. And that that's how I know that I already replaced that one. And I go through that way. And if you find some caps that don't match or anything like that, you could always just double check afterwards, check the schematic then, order an individual one. What you will find all the time is values of capacitance that match but voltage that don't and that's totally fine as long as it's more not less so example 220 microfarad cap you pull out one that's 220 12 volts and luke includes only 16 volt 220 microfarad totally fine you could have a 1 million volt 220 microfarad cap and that is totally okay it's as long as it's as as the same voltage or higher you're cool however if you pull out a 220 and you look in the bag and there are no 220s, that's an issue. And maybe you have a weird off model and that's when you would need to reference the schematics. On the flip side, if you're doing a console that Luke doesn't sell cap kits for or there's no other documentation out, I do the opposite. I, um, I read the capacitor on the motherboard and I don't even remove it. I just kind of read it there and then I mark it with a magic marker and I write down like C1, 220, 12 volt, C2, whatever, and I go through it that way, and then I make the cap list, and then I order all the caps, and I put the DigiKey or Bowser or whatever link in the little spreadsheet um, that I, you know, I usually handwrite the individual values, and then I put them into a spreadsheet, and I have the DigiKey links there, so that way people, I could share the cap list with people, probably want to put that on consolemods.org, and that way when the caps come in, it's the opposite. Anyone with a dot on it is the old one, and I could replace it with a new one and go from there, so... 
I know this was kind of a long rambly answer, but I really wanted to put this into uh, into perspective for those of you who are just starting to get into cap replacements and want to understand kind of more of it. I know probably at least half the people listening are like, for fuck's sake, Bob, you talk about this at least once a month. But, you know, we want to always welcome people in here who haven't done this stuff like like a lot of us have. I want newcomers to feel just as welcome as people who have been here forever, which is another reason why I like the timestamps. If you don't want to hear me ramble, skip to the next section. Delon 5 just picked up an awesome 29-inch PVM that is 15 kilohertz only, and they want to use their Dreamcast on it. And mostly in this situation, people would just connect the Dreamcast and use it in 480i mode. However, that interlaced flicker look is not the best look for every game. Some games it's totally awesome, but not all. So they were looking to have it downscaled to 240p. And they had referenced a couple of articles about how to use Xtron RGB interfaces to do that. And the articles are great. The info that Fudo had put out there is awesome, but I don't like that situation or that solution at all. And I especially don't like it today when there are better options out there. So just a very quick overview, those devices sometimes depending on the full chain and monitor you're using, can sort of fake a 240p look, but it's never guaranteed and it never looks as good as other solutions. What I think that you should be doing is you should be running your Dreamcast in 480p and you should be using the RetroTINK 5X or GBS Control to downscale. Now, if you don't need an upscaler at all, if you only want a game on your PVM, get a GBS control. It's cheap. Um, if you don't solder yourself, you should be able to pick up pre-made kits. Just don't buy them from Bitfunks, please. Anybody other than Bitfunks, buy a pre-made kit, get the um, 480p into it, downscale it to 240p, and you're good to go. If for whatever specific reason you wanted to downscale 480i to 240p, the Tink 5X is going to be the best device out there now to do that. I believe the OSSC DEX can do that as well, but that's going to be a bit more complicated. If you already have a DE10 and you don't mind swapping parts, you could look into that. But really, if your goal is just to take Dreamcast or other 480p signals and make them 240p, the, uh, for the context of this monitor, the GBS control is such a good device for that. And it's one of those things too, where every time you power it off and back on, it retains the last mode, at least for me. So once you get in there with a web app and you sync it to your Wi-Fi and you, and you configure it for this, it should just be a dedicated downscaler from now on. So that's definitely the solution I would, I would recommend. RetroTINK 5X is also an awesome solution. Um, it just, the only reason I said GBS control over it is price. If you said you want a device that also is an upscaler and also does all the amazing things that the Tink 5X does, then definitely get that. But if you're just looking for a downscaler, you really can't beat the GBS control right now for that. So I think the GBS control has uh, some 480i options too, but really with the Dreamcast, you don't have to worry. Set it all to 240p and you're, or 480p and you're good to go. And there are a few games that are 480i only, but in my opinion, those games just play them in 480i then. If it was that big a deal from the company that they couldn't add 480p or 240p support, that's how the game should probably be played. So I'll leave a link to my GBS control video. All of the basics are still relevant. Some of the screenshots are a little outdated and it's got some more features, but it's all you would really need to get started. Oliver Clare had an idea for an article on the wiki. A list of consoles with, R with the RGB codes and hex codes needed to reproduce their original shell colors, also possibly including the controllers and PSUs. It occurred to them recently when they had to sand down deep scratches in a PS1 and repaint it because the scratches couldn't just be buffed out. And it turned out fine, but not exactly the original color shades as when new. Consensus seems to be that a color scanner of some kind would be needed and that it would have to be used on the console shells directly, not on photos, in order for a more accurate reading. Just wondering if I could give some advice on getting a color scanner and logistically how to make it happen. None of their consoles are completely fresh or closed in box, so they don't know how useful their own collection would be. They'd be happy to get a color scanner and post it onto other folks who are interested in getting involved. So um, that's an awesome idea. Generally speaking, when stuff like this happens, it's people like you, Oliver. It's people that say, hey, I found a problem. I found a solution. So now I'm going to make it a hobby to try to borrow or procure brand new in box consoles and do a color scanning of those. And then 
uh, find broken, smashed consoles and uh, you know things that are completely not usable, cut the plastic up and then scan the centers of those so you don't have any of the layers that have been exposed to light all these years. Scan the inside, shave down some of the inside layers, and then get get take the data of all of them and try to find a, a RGB and hex code that lands somewhere in the middle, and then try to reproduce it and see how it looks. Now, that's ridiculous amounts of work. So what I would actually like to see is a bunch of people kind of all chip in and do this. Um, but I have no idea what kind of color scanner would be needed. I have zero clue. So I would love the community's help on this one, but I think all of this is a great idea. And I think people like Evan Amos would probably like to get involved with stuff like this because Evan has done so much work in the photography side, but Evan also has just boxes and boxes, floor to ceiling and racks of consoles that Evan never plays, but he's a creative person always looking to do something new in this stuff. So who knows, maybe Evan would be into uh, adding that info for his consoles as well. But I think that's an awesome idea. I just wouldn't really know where to begin. So does anybody else out there have some suggestions? Adam Adamant has a couple of Dreamcast related questions. I think I know some of the answers to this, but I'm probably going to need to uh, rely on the help of the awesome people listening for, for filling in the blanks here. First, do I have a good source for a pre-programmed BIOS chip? They want to do a BIOS swap, not a piggyback dual BIOS. No, um, I have a bunch of friends that I know that are either amateur modders that do stuff for themselves and their friends who bought the chips and a programmer or pro modders who you could just pay them to do not only the programming of the chip, but the installation as well. But I don't know of a source out there or at least a reliable source that you could just buy the chip pre-programmed. So if anybody has a link, that would be cool, especially somebody who you've purchased from and everything went well. Next, can the DreamPi double up as a retro NAS where backups can be played from the DreamPi? No. In fact, 99.99% chance no and never will be because you would have to then feed it through the modem port. So I'm pretty sure that is not at all a thing. If I'm remembering, not remembering correctly, I've been kind of sick this week. So if my brain is just mush right now, please correct me. But I don't, I don't think that's all possible. And lastly, can the DreamPi and RetroNAS be used together if they're on the same network? Yes, absolutely, but how are you getting files from the RetroNAS to the Dreamcast? Is it the mode thing? And I'm still looking for a cheap mode, or if somebody wants to trade me a Sports Edition Dreamcast and controller for a mode, I would love to do that. It's in perfect condition. It's the black Dreamcasts. It's all stock. Uh, but that's the only way I know how. A mode and the high zero or something. I have all the parts here to do it. I just don't have a mode. So... Um, if that works though, if that works reliably, there's no reason why you couldn't have both. Just remember, you're not running RetroNAS through the DreamPi. The DreamPi is specifically just for connecting to the internet. But if I remember correctly, they were working on DreamPi support on RetroNAS, so you would only actually need one as long as you had a way to connect a USB modem to a Raspberry Pi running RetroNAS. So I would look into that, but um, yeah, I'm pretty sure those are just two completely different things. Couple of questions from Belmont. First, they would love to have all of their component video consoles hooked up to one switch, but their current one only has three inputs. Can they daisy chain two switches together? Yes, but keep cost in mind and keep quality in mind. The short answer is yes, absolutely. And there shouldn't be any safety issues whatsoever. So plug it all in. If you get some interference or clear video, but audio interference, then you know it's not really gonna be a good solution for you. Or if it works fine, hey, maybe you just rigged something together that's gonna to work totally fine. But keep your total solution in mind with this. So let me just paint a picture, right? So let's say you have one manual switch now and you've just connected that to your setup and everything's fine. And you have three inputs, but four consoles you want to use. Is one of those consoles something that you only use maybe once a month, if that? Just leave it unplugged and manually plug it in and then wait till you need more consoles plugged in. Maybe just save yourself some cash and some, some trouble. Or if your answer is no, I, I want to use four all the time regularly or whenever I feel like it without messing around. Okay, cool. But how many consoles do you eventually want connected to this? 
And if the answer is, well, I'm a nerd and I want all of them, yeah, back it down a little. We're all nerds that want all of them. Get a little bit realistic. How many consoles do you really think you're going to be buying this year, next year? Are you a sporadic person who just doesn't even know you want a console and then you pick it up, which is obviously me. So, you know, half the crap I've bought, I've just been in a game store and went, ooh, that's neat. So plan for that. So let's just say you have four consoles that you know that you want to use, and maybe you're going to buy another one this year. So you pick up the GamesCare 6 six by 2 switch that I just reviewed, and you could start even by buying four of those pigtail adapters, because those use 3.5 millimeter inputs. So you get the RCA to 3.5 millimeter, um, and then that way you could buy the extra converters as you need them. They're only a few bucks, but maybe you save some, not converters, pigtails. You save some money, whatever. So you kind of go from there, and then couple of years go by and now you're at seven consoles. So then you end up picking a G comp switch up, which has eight inputs. So it's an eight by two. And maybe that worked out for you. Maybe you were able to step up and maybe every time you upgraded, you were able to sell off the rest. But on the flip side, what if you're like, no, I, I really hope to acquire like six, seven consoles in the next year or two. These are ones that I've always loved or used to own and want to repurchase. And I've already been planning on this. With all respect to everything else, if you're buying that stuff knowing that you're going to be reselling it soon, you might you might end up losing money doing it that way. Whereas if you just bought the G comp right now, you've had it and you just add to it as you go. So I just want to I want to put that into perspective because I, I know it might not seem like it, but I always want people to spend the least amount of money possible, but total overall. So if you have four or five consoles, tops, that you want to use, buy that second manual switch, cross your fingers, you're out 50 bucks total with the switch, and just get a good HD retrovision cable to connect the two switches together. And heck, if five years from now you get a sixth console and you need to upgrade, cool, right? You don't lose any money. But and uh, Or maybe you go to the Games Care one and you have five or six consoles total and five years from now you get a G-Comp. That's totally cool too. But I just want to make sure that, you know, and on the, also don't go run out and get a G-Comp if you only have four consoles. That might just be too much money spent for you. But I just want to put that all into perspective because it's really, really easy to to spend too much money on this stuff because you think that you're saving money, but you're not. And I am the guiltiest of that. And I try to justify it by saying how many times I've saved money doing it this way, or, or what a great article I could write if I figure this out. But it's really just my, my stubbornness and my ego trying to save money, when at the end of the day I go, if I had only dropped that 150 bucks last year, I would have saved 20 hours of my life and 50 bucks total at the end of it because I tried to buy this and then needed that and then I had to put this in between. And so, yeah, uh, I just I'm, tr I'm trying to help. I'm not trying to get you to spend too much money. Belmont had another question, and this one's kind of hard to talk about because nobody talks about the real answers to this and everybody tries to put on a happy face and pretend like there is another side to it. So I wanted to answer it real because that's who I am. Whether whether it upsets everybody or not, I would much rather have somebody upset with me for the truth than upset with some put on a happy face bullshit lie. So I do want to start by saying Belmont, um, thank you for the question. Obviously, it was meant with love. My first response to you is going to be <laughs> met with love and then everything else is going to be talking generally about the scene and has nothing to do with you personally. I, I appreciate everything. Um, so Belmont's question which was asked with love and is going to be answered at first with love is, am I going to any conventions or shows this year? And the short answer to that is, I will always be at Retro World Expo, which has been in Hartford, Connecticut recently, in some capacity, whether it's actually presenting or whether it's just showing up and hanging out and attending other people's stuff. Because to be blunt, without Retro World Expo, without Lance and Chris, there would be no Retro RGB. Now, that said, Chris also owns a game, a bunch of game stores, Retro Games Plus in Connecticut, that has events called Congo. They're like meetup swap meets. And I like going to those, uh, but I don't attend all of them, but I would like to attend more. And on the flip side too, down in Brooklyn, Arcade Brooklyn and Brooklyn Video Games have events all the time. And without either of those stores and the crews that hang out, especially in, the, in New York, there would also no longer be a retro RGB. 
So what I'm telling you is that while I, yes, I will always be popping into those events. If you are going to be at one of those, let me know and I will try my best to come down. I don't care if one of you is going to be there or a hundred of you. I love hanging out. I love meeting you in person. And I, I owe those events and those stores everything because there's just, there would be no retro RGB without Steve, the owner of Brooklyn video games and arcade Brooklyn without Chris, the owner of retro games plus, and one of the people that runs retro world expo and Lance who used to be before the sold used to be running retroware TV and also runs the expo. So that one event and anything to do with those two stores, you could always either count on me to just be there or let me know. And I will gladly come down to that. Now, as far as hanging out at expos go, I love it. And it's funny because my favorite part of doing retro RGB and the public facing side of stuff is hanging out with all of you and the people that I've met. And keep in mind, I deal with a lot of trolling. I don't deal with the trolling of a YouTube channel with 50,000 followers. I deal with the trolling of a website with millions and millions of hits on it. So I have every right in the world to be like, oh, the people are the worst. The people are the best. The people are, are what really keeps me doing this instead of just going to get a day job again and making a lot more money with a lot less hours. You all are awesome. And I, I, I say that, but like, I feel like actions speak louder than words. So doing these Q and A's answering for hours every day, questions on non-paid services. I feel like those actions are there to show you that I, I really appreciate all of you so much. And if you're not in a position to support, I still think you're awesome. Just, you know, maybe help spread the word so we can keep this going. But I try to make I try to make my action show that I really love hanging out with you. And if there were a way to magically tra transport myself with a Star Trek transporter into these conventions, hang out for a couple hours and transport home, I would be at every single one. But the reality is it costs a lot of money to go there and I've never been paid for one. Now, I just, once again, real quick, I've told Lance and Chris, I will sweep the freaking floors of Retro World Expo if they need me to. I owe that place and I will never ask them for money and I would refuse it if they even hinted at it. So I'm not talking about Retro World, but every other expo I've been to, even if it's a driving distance, I gotta jump in my car and go, pay gas, tolls, everything else. And remember, I lived in Manhattan for a while and didn't have a car. So I'd have to rent a car at Manhattan prices. So often $500 a day for a vehicle to do that. Plus all this equipment that I had to buy, all the stuff that I used to bring to all of these. So that alone was a lot of money just to get there. I've flown out to a bunch of them. And then, you know, just kind of a blunt truth here. When you're working for yourself, every moment that you're not working, you're losing money. And I work seven days a week and I'm not complaining. I love what I do. But the fact is that I, every single day I'm working on a, a post on the website or I'm working on a video or I'm helping a developer make a product, which hopefully ends up with an affiliate link so I could make some of that money back and not just spend hours and hours of my life helping somebody out to get nothing in return for it other than a couple of clicks on a video worth a few pennies. And, you know, I, affiliate links are never required, but they're always really appreciated when I, I bend over backwards to put some work into projects. And not every developer likes giving those, which I guess I get it, but I also kind of don't. So, you know, I'm saying that because every minute really counts. I really do work every day and all, every, all moments of my day that I can work, I do. So going to these, especially taking multiple days, really cuts into it. And also, I got to have a hotel room if I'm going for multiple days, with, which also costs a lot of money. And I don't need some four-star fancy BS. I need a non-roach motel something that's clean. That's it. That's all I've ever needed. Even when I worked for a company that had a bigger budget, I never took anything. I, you know, we got a suite once by accident and uh, I, it was the same price, but I felt guilty. I don't need that crap, but I do need my own hotel room because I'm a fat old man that snores and farts. And I refuse to put another human being through that all night long when we're at a convention trying to get some rest. I have no idea how my wife even puts up with it, but I just, it's my only demand is I'm paying for my own hotel room because I'm not putting another human being through sleeping next to me at night. So all of this costs money and it was really starting to dig into my budget because while this is a very bold statement, I have the receipts to prove what I'm about to say. I've spent more traveling to expos and conventions than most of you have spent on your entire retro gaming collection. It's a bold statement, but it's true. 
So that's a lot of money. And unfortunately, most of these expos take take the stance of the music business and, oh, well, you should pay to play because you're going to get all of this exposure in front of new crowds. And sometimes that was true in, in both scenarios. But most of the time in those local music venues, we were playing to the crowd that we brought, that we paid to play in front of people who paid the venue to be there. And I've seen how many people that have come to meet retro RGB and friends at all of these things. And I was okay with it because I do like helping expos until I found out that some of the people around me were making thousands of dollars for their appearance and doing less than half of the work that I did. And by the way, hanging out and talking with you all day does not feel like work. Yes, it applies to the whole, you know, I'm not home working when I could be, but that's also a very positive boost for my mental health, hanging out with everybody. But I mean, I was the first person through the door, or first first um, presenter through the door. The vendors are usually the first ones in because they're the hardest working at these expos. But the first presenter through the door in the morning, making sure everybody can, you know, can I help? Hey, you know, you need help with your booth. Hey, what's up with that? Hey, you guys look tired. You know, let me bring over a thing of coffees, which somebody got pissed at me once for that. What? I'm just trying to be nice, whatever. But I'm always there. I stay the whole day. I talk to everybody. And then I'm sitting there and then a famous person strolls in an hour and a half after the expo starts you know, talking about, ugh, I hate doing these. Oh, it's always such a drain. Oh, I need to do that. And, you know, and then a line of people start to walk up and they roll their eyes like, oh, here we go. And I'm just like, I was disgusted at that in itself because it's my opinion, it's very strong opinion, that if somebody's going to stand in line to talk to you, you better bring your fucking A game. A human being is going to wait in line just to say hi to you. What, what is wrong with you? You should be doing backflips that another human would ever care to wait to say hi to you. What is that attitude? And then I found out that some of those people were the ones making a lot of money to be there, that didn't want to be there, treated it like crap. Uh, and while they seemed nice to the people walking up, knowing that that's kind of their attitude of it, really pissed me off. I also sat next to somebody who I don't think was paid, that people were lining up to see them, and they were just on their laptop. People were, uh, uh, and people were walking away because like, oh, I guess I'm bothering them. And yes, maybe they're introverted and maybe they didn't realize people were lining up, but you're at a fucking expo. You have your own booth and that's your job that day is to say hi to the people that are trying to say hi to you because they're your fan. So there was so much negativity with that. And I just figured, stay in your lane. You just be you. You be the happy guy. But when I found out that people were getting paid to not do any of that, you mix that with how much money I've made at all of these expos for the tickets sold and how much money I've lost. And then one expo did something really, really shitty to me a couple of years ago, which I just, they apologized. And if I were a better person, I wouldn't have even said anything, but you mix all of that stuff together. And what do you get? You get me losing a ton of money to hang out with people that I love to hang out with. So why am I going to do it at these expos? Why wouldn't I do it at a place where I'm treated equally? You know, I work my butt off for you. How about you treat me like I deserve to be there and not like I should be lucky to work so hard for you, even though I've been doing it for almost 10 years. So ask these expos if you want to see me there. And if they want to have me out, they're going to pay for my travel. They're going to pay for my own hotel room, a basic, small, cheapest room that's as long as it's not a roach motel but that's it. And then they're going to pay me something for the day to be there. That's it. Minimum wage. I don't, I don't care, but I'm not losing money. And on the flip side, if four people ask for me to be there, then I shouldn't be there because as much as I want to see you, why would the expo waste money on me? Totally understand that part of it. No disrespect there, but I'm not going to spend a lot of money to travel to these places to make them a lot of money when I could be trying to make Arcade Brooklyn money, when I could be trying to make Retro Games Plus money. They don't actually charge for their meetups, just saying. <laughs> and when I could be trying to bring people to an expo like Retro World, who has bent over backwards to help me over the years. Those are the people I love helping and will never ask for money for. But I'm not gonna just sit there and get treated, treated like crap while I'm making them a whole bunch of money because I wanna hang out with you, because that's not fair to any of us. 
And you know, if you disagree with me, that's fine. I'm always learning. I'm always evolving. I'm always trying to get better at this stuff. And sometimes, you know, don't forget, I'm just sitting here by, by myself talking to a camera. So maybe hearing some of your responses to this are going to remind me of something different. And I'm going to apologize next week, which I do all the time. I have no problem being wrong. But this is kind of the opinion that I have now on it. And um, I do realize it's going to upset upset a lot of people. But I just, I, I really want to hear from the awesome people that I've hung out with at these expos. Who I don't care about are, I got to be blunt, a lot of the loudest voices. People that call me an e-beggar for having a Patreon. People that accuse me of charging for answering questions, which is technically true, but you also missed out on the hundreds of questions a day I answer for free on social media and YouTube comments. These are generally people, I'm so sorry to say this, but have never had a job, have never left their parents' house, still living in their parents' basement, and have never worked a day in their life. And their opinion, I couldn't give a shit about because they have no idea what it's like to work as hard as I do. But they're the loudest voice, and they're the ones with the time to post these comments and this stuff. So it's going to be hard to figure out who's who if uh, we haven't interacted before. But I really want to hear your opinions on this. And, you know, I'm not going to delete any comments on this one. Let the trolls say what they're going to say. I want you to see it because this is what I deal with all day long. But I really care about the good people, the people who have supported. And by support, I just mean, you know, if you're not in a position to support monetarily or you only watch one out of every hundred of my videos, don't pay me for that. But, you know. Subscribe to the channel. That's free. Tell one of your friends. Click on an affiliate link that's completely free and doesn't charge anymore. That's most of you. Most of you are freaking amazing. And I want to hear from you about what you think about this expo stuff. Because if I'm wrong, I'm wrong and I'll apologize. But I just I can't risk like not being able to make make more mortgage one month because I want to hang out with you. But I have to spend a thousand or two thousand bucks traveling across the country, renting a car, getting equipment, spending a couple of days, spending a hotel just to be treated like, uh, oh, you know, you should be lucky that we let you be here. Like, No, absolutely not. So let me know what you think. Tony Shadrick had an awesome question, and I'm going to answer it with what I do now, but I know that we need to evolve this to something different. So I would love to have the community build a solution for this. So let's start out. Here's the question. What if you're driving down the road and you see a CRT on the side of the road, or you go to a Craigslist or Facebook Marketplace ad, or you're at the dump or something, and you stumble across a CRT? How do you test it? What I do now is I have a time sleuth, and an HDMI to component video converter. Uh, Both of those could be battery powered because they both have USB plugs on it. So I have two USB charging devices. And then if you just take the green output with an RCA cable, that's composite video. So no RF testing yet, but that's how I'm able to go in and I test 240p, 480i and 480p. 480p is important because there are some component video sets that will do 480p, but that also opens up a bunch of questions. So what that does is you test 240p, 480i, so at the very least you get 15 kilohertz. You know the monitor works. You know it powers on. If it's an HD CRT, you can see if it's one that has lag or not in those modes. And that's the basics. But here's what it doesn't do. Colors, convergence, uh, geometry. Does it? If it's an HD CRT, does it treat 240p like 480i or like 240p. So what I also, if I know that I'm going to be somewhere with this, I could also take a Nomad with me to handle the rest of those tests. And that would also work for composite and component video. Same thing, you could have all of the different color patterns in there, and that works. But that leaves a lot to be desired. First of all, you have to buy a Time Sleuth, a DAC, a Nomad, some some cables, um, you know, a EverDrive, maybe you just don't want all those things, or maybe you just don't want to keep those in your car with you at all times. And also you need a power source. And I used to have a bunch of those jump packs where you could like, it has the the jumper packs on the side, you charge it up and you use it in case your car battery dies, but it also has a DC and an AC outlet on it. But I've never used the AC outlet in any of those before. I've always only used the DC outlet. So here's what I think we need, and I would love your help on. First is the easy one. What's a jump pack? that could power a 40 inch CRT uh, for two or three minutes, right? Not for hours. Do you know of one that will work? Have you ever done this before? Um, You know, I'm not talking about a generator. I'm talking about something that you would consider leaving in your car anyway, 
in case your car battery dies or in case you need a, a phone charge while you're at the park or whatever else, right? A jump pack with an AC outlet that you could power a large CRT for just a few moments. So that should be easy. Please let me know. And uh, because YouTube's weird with the links, um, if you're posting in the support services, links are fine. If you're posting on YouTube, just do the description of it, like brand, model, whatever. And, that, and I could just look that up on Amazon. Um, but what we would also really need is a device that outputs composite or component, maybe with a switch on the side, that you could switch between color patterns and geometry patterns that are 240p, 480i, and 480p, and also have the drop shadow test to see how it's programmed. So basically, can you put the 240p test suite on something like a Raspberry Pi Zero and have it output those different things? Lag is cool, but with HD CRTs, there are so many advantages to them that if lag really mattered to you, you could bring a Time Sleuth 2. But without without you know going off on a rant in the middle of Tony's question, there are absolutely scenarios in which an HD CRT with some lag is still the perfect choice, or at the very least, a very good choice compared to a cheap LCD panel. So one of the rare moments that lag would come second to, does it work? Do the colors look okay, or is just it all completely off? Does the geometry okay, or is it totally screwed? And if it's, for the record, if we're talking about a BVM or something, you should probably pick that up anyway to try to restore it. But if it's a 36-inch consumer CRT that maybe it's completely dead, or maybe it's going to need, you know, $1,000 worth of work, uh, I think most people would be like, that's too big and too heavy to, to mess around with unless I knew that it was in good condition. So, to in conclusion, that was what, I, you know, the Time Sleuth, and a DAC, and some kind of way to power it is how I do that now. Bringing a Nomad with you is also a great way to accomplish it, but we need a reliable battery pack. Multiple would be great, so I could post a bunch of different links. And we also would really benefit from something like a small Pi device that just outputs basic 240p test suite-like patterns um, and a way to test all of this stuff. So is anybody able to help? Tony Escobar wanted to follow up on the discussion from last week about Saturn S-Video versus RGB uh, connected to their PVM. They said they didn't even try. They just stared at their organized jumble of cables and realized that not only would they have to tackle the mess of video cables to unplug the Mr. or analog BNC cables from the TV to connect the Saturn one, but their audio solution would need to be reworked. Their power brick is back there too, so it's not an easy shuffle to move everything around. And they really only play JRPGs on the Saturn, and it looks spectacular with S-Video. Their solution is so nice with very little work to change the DE15 back and forth between the Mr. and Analog DAC and the HDMI between the Super NT and the Mega SG, so they're leaving well enough alone. Um, as a quick follow-up question, are there any BNC switchers that are similar to the component or SCART switchers that are appropriate for retro gaming? Um, all right, so a couple of things. First of all, I'm, I'm so glad I was able to just add some perspective, because for anybody that didn't listen to last week's, Tony was wondering about if they should rewire their entire setup. And my advice was, if you, you have an amazing setup now, so is there a reason to rewire it? And I guess not. So thank you for the reply. It was kind of funny. I was smiling through the whole thing because you reminded me of so many setups that I've had over the years. But your question's an easy one. <clears throat> if you're looking for BNC switches, there's two ways to go around this. Get any Extron crosspoint. And yes, there are used pieces of equipment. So yeah, you know, they're probably gonna be fine, but you might get a bum one with a bum power supply or caps that die. So just always with used, it could last a day, it could last a year, it could last the rest of your life. You don't know until you buy it. But they're great pieces of equipment that used to be thousands of dollars. If you need mostly RCA, but just one BNC, you could get BNC to RCA adapters but look at your total solution for that. So if you have a mix of composite, component, S-Video, RGB, RGBHV, get a cross point and then get the adapters if you want them all in one switch. But if you're talking about, you know, I have a, a couple of RGB things, you know, or a couple of composite video or a couple of component video, maybe just go the opposite and go BNC to RCA. So hopefully that was put that in a bit of a perspective, but I'm glad to hear that you're, you're happy with your setup and it is an awesome one. So no worries there. Tim, the gamer 23 said they came across the discussion on a subreddit. Oh boy. About Sega Genesis metal RF shields. The original poster asked about repairing or replacing rusty shields and comments seem to suggest they're not needed. 
unless you plan to use it with the Sega CD due to ghosting interference. Uh, so I think that's probably bullshit. The Genesis, uh, Japanese Genesis consoles never had those shields on them. They were just a motherboard in the case. We had them in the U.S. because of the FCC rules with radio frequency standards. And that would mean that the device that's in your house would have to not interfere with any other device in the house and other devices should not interfere with it. It's one of those cases where, you know how like turning your microwave on sometimes would kill your Wi-Fi back in the day type of thing? Like that, that scenario was way more prevalent when just analog TV signals were mostly wireless and even cable TV signals could be affected by this. That was really just to protect other devices from itself. But that's not something that we really got in all parts of the world. It only had to do with US standards and it's not always true. Now with some consoles like the PC Engine and Turbo Graphics, their metal shielding was part of the overall grounding of the console. So that is absolutely required. But I, I think that somebody, I could be wrong about this, so please correct me if I'm wrong, but I think somebody posted, like they so often do on Reddit, thinking they knew everything, but they confused two things. Now, there are absolutely scenarios in which maybe when you plug two consoles into each other, you could need some shielding. And it is possible that the metal shielding that goes between the Sega CD and the Genesis wasn't just for FCC reasons, but it was something that Sega required. However, I've also connected, I have a Mega CD right now hooked up to a Japanese Mega Drive with no metal at all inside the console shell or between the Sega CD and the Genesis or Mega Drive. And there, it looks exactly the same as without it. And remember, I'm the one that does the video analysis all the time. So I would definitely have picked this up. Now, that doesn't mean that I've tested every model and every scenario and run it next to a microwave and an RF adapter. So it could be that the person on Reddit was in a scenario genuinely where they were getting more interference. It's just not one of those rules. It's not you need it with the Sega CD period. It's just one of those things where use it however you want it. And then if you need to troubleshoot back down the line and see what you're getting. But once again, I could be wrong. I'm always, always willing to admit and change if I am wrong, but I've done a lot of testing on this. And I've also spent quite a few hours of my life in an EMI chamber having medical grade computers pass 60601-1 compliance testing for this exact type of thing. So I am not somebody pulling something out of my ass here. This was part of my day job as well as part of the retro RGB job that I do. So my guess with a lot of experience and fact behind it is that's bullshit. Um, you don't, if you were to need anything at all, it might be the metal between the Genesis and Sega CD, uh, and I wouldn't worry about it, but your mileage may vary for a whole bunch of different reasons. Retro Music Dan had a question pertaining to recording footage on a VCR and speed running. They stumbled across a Twitter thread that showed there would be a tiny discrepancy between the recording and the gameplay due to the refresh rate of the consoles. And while I might be reading this wrong or skimming through too fast, I think that's exactly true. And I think the only time it is ever going to be an issue is speed running or if you're doing exact archival footage of something for for a specific reason. You know, you want to compare it to, you want to try changing things around, whatever that might be. And the reason is because a lot of devices that you'll see, including VCRs, adhere to very strict video standards. So TV signals were broadcast at 59.94, I think. Um, I'm kind of tired, so if I got that number a decimal off, let me know. But in PCs, we're at 60 hertz. So most displays or devices around those signals would work at either or both of those frequencies. But you have a lot of consoles that were 60.4, 60.9, or as low as 58 point something. And the more time goes by, the more that's going to be a difference. So if you record one minute of footage from a console that's at 58 or 61, I'll just keep this round to make my brain not as, uh, not as hurt as hard. So you're recording a minute of footage where at 60 frames per second, but it's actually 58 or actually 61. You might get a little bit of judder every now and then, but really you're not going to affect the time in any meaningful capacity. But 20 minutes, a half hour, multiple hours, now you could affect that by seconds. 
And speed running is definitely where it would matter the most. Or if you're trying to do very specific archival footage and you're finding frame jumps or tearing or something like that, that would also be another reason why you might want to dig into this. But the fact that a VCR would probably record at a TV signal always locked to that and the console isn't would make a lot of sense. Um, I think what we really, really need, and I, here's something that I still don't have a true grasp on. So if any members of the R3 Discord are listening, please come in here and school me. But I would love to see a VRR capture card. And then also, most importantly, a codec where you could capture in VRR. So that um, for the case of retro gaming, you could just capture it always in the 58 point something of or the 61 of that console. But also for modern games where your refresh rates do dip and rise, your playback would match that exactly. So there would never be any judder or screen tearing or anything like that. But I, I'm always kind of curious because I know there's some ways to do to dial in exact refresh rates with some codecs and some software on your retro consoles if they don't ever waver. But you would have to do that per console, and it's a giant pain. So I would really love more of a VRR approach to this, where you just set the recording to VRR, and it just records at whatever it detects. So I don't know. I think I got the first part right. I'd love more info on the second. I think that's it for this time. I just refreshed the Patreon page, and it still says 18 of 19 comments showing, and no more are loading. So that either means maybe somebody deleted a comment and the, the code broke on the page, Maybe the page is just broken and we lost a question this week. So if you're new to these Q&As and you have a question, ask wherever it is that you support. Just please ask in the latest Q&A post because the way these services work, I can't really figure out what's a new question on an old post. Plus, I like just scrolling through in real time and hanging out like we were sitting at a bar or an expo together and uh, and just kind of answering them like this. But, um, you know, also, if I ever miss a question, it's never intentional. I miss a lot less now that I have the timestamps in because I always can see if something doesn't match up to my notes, but there's always going to be situations like this where things are just broken. So my apologies if I ever miss one of your questions, but as always, thank you to everybody who participates in these and especially thank you to everybody who supports because I really appreciate it. Well, that's it and I'll see you next week.